In 55 BC, Julius Caesar dared to do what no Roman had ever done before. He set out with two legions crossing the English Channel to arrive on the island of Britain. The Romans knew little about this distant land, but that was soon to change as the might and influence of Rome swept over the region, changing the future of this island called Britain and the life of the Britons who inhabited it. Join us on this three-part series where we look at how Britain became a Roman province and what that meant for the island of Britain. Hello and welcome to the 11th episode of the AIQ podcast. My name is Alexander Goodman and on this episode we will be covering Roman Britain, Caesar crosses the sea. So let's begin at the start in Iron Age Britain. Iron Age Britain is an interesting point in history where not a great deal is known. However, what we do know is that it was settled from a wide variety of peoples due to the relatively transversable English Channel. The terrain in Britain during the late Iron Age was rather rugged in places, and as a result it was difficult for the inhabitants to create large widespread clusters of settlements. This meant that the majority of settlements were located in what are problematically referred to as hill forts to take advantage of the rugged terrain. It was only shortly before the approach of the Roman invasion that larger low ground settlements developed around rivers. Nevertheless, it is fair to suggest that Britain was quite populated for the time. There were some valuable exploitable resources sites that the natives started to utilise at this time. This included limestone in Northampton and Lincolnshire, lead and silver in Somerset, copper in Chester, iron in the Forest of Dean, gold in North and West Wales, mining in Cornwall, as well as a few other commodities. However, the real wealth inside Britain was in agriculture, where they had ample supply of livestock animals such as sheep, horses and cattle. These agricultural exploits, along with some of the more sizeable metal deposits, were what made Britain an interesting landmass off the coasts of the European mainland, and something that the Roman Empire found very valuable in this island. We must also address a situation where Rome was looking out towards Britain before the first invasion, what they knew and what they thought would have been waiting for them across the channel. So importantly, we need to address that our sources for looking at Britain before the invasion primarily come from sources written after Caesar's invasion, making it tricky to give a definite answer. The first thing to note is that the Romans initially had trouble understanding how to categorise the Britons ethnographically. Tacitus, a Roman historian, suggests that the Britons had most likely immigrated from different parts of the barbarian world, which would explain why all the Britons did not look the same. He suggests that the Caledonians living in Scotland must be from Germanic origins because of their taller stature and reddish hair. The Silures, residing in South Wales, had swarthy faces and curly hair, which Tacitus attributes to Iberian origins. And the Britons living in southern England look like Gauls, according to Tacitus, and so suggests a common origin with those people. Caesar, however, notes in his word that the people in the centre of the island were said to have originated on the island, and that it is the coastal regions that are home to immigrated populaces, such as the Belgae and Gauls. Secondly, the Romans had trouble distinguishing the British social cultural practices and their belief systems from that of the Gauls. Caesar notes that the southern Britons shared many cultural beliefs and practices with the Gauls, and even says that the Druidism that was so potent in Gaelic culture supposedly originated in Britain. Tacitus goes further in these comparisons, saying that in both Gaul and Britain one would find, and quote, 
the same rituals, the same superstitious beliefs, the language does not differ much, there is the same boldness in confronting danger, and, when it has come, the same cowardice in avoiding it, and that's from Tacitus Agricola. Thirdly, our sources, again primarily Caesar, discusses the military might of the Britons. Caesar notes that they are very similar to the Gauls in fighting style, with one exception, that being that the Britons also fought with chariots. Tacitus also recalls this, but he is likely getting his information directly from Caesar, or, at the very least, other sources, which would have used Caesar's writing as their primary source. This is important because it is one of the few ways in which the Romans distinguished the Britons from the Gauls. However, it is an inherently problematic claim, as there have been minimal amounts of archaeological evidence to suggest that the Britons ever used chariots, let alone fought with them. Despite these common misunderstandings about British culture, Caesar and the rest of the Romans did know some small piece of information about Britain, as there is evidence of many trade goods being exchanged between Britain and the rest of Europe. Caesar, supposedly, was informed that the island was triangular and temperate, although quite how he was aware of this is uncertain. This was likely through traders and local Gauls, but for the most part, the Romans were still unsure as to what lay beyond the channel. So we can clearly tell that Caesar would not have known a lot of what was over in Britain at the time, and most of his information would have come through Gallic traders, and more than likely not from first-hand sources. So then we have to think, what would be the motivations to bring on this immense effort to go and invade this land? Well, while it is highly debated whether or not Caesar truly intended to make this invasion a permanent occupation, he brought two full legions and 18 cavalry ships. This was a very sizable army for what may have only been an expeditionary force. There was also the belief that among many in the Roman Empire, that Britain was a highly valuable island, and so there was likely a financial incentive to permanently occupy the island. Nevertheless, Caesar states that his motivations were due to his previous Gaelic campaigns, where Britain supposedly aided the Gauls against the Roman forces. He states that in the opposing armies in almost all of the wars with the Gauls, he had encountered British reinforcements, and he believed it prudent to learn about these people, their land and their cities. An invasion was the only way to learn this, he states, as no merchants could answer any of his questions. It is highly likely that this mysterious island probably intrigued Caesar as well. After all, he was notorious for his diligent information gathering. He also sought to gain the alliance and submission of many local groups as possible, and he claims many of these people sent envoys submitting to Roman governments. Whether this is accurate or not is under dispute. However, what this brings to light is that the presence of these envoys makes Caesar's information gathering invasion unnecessary and therefore may not have been a motivation. Politically, Caesar's invasion appears to make very little sense, as it was likely illegal for a provincial governor to do this. It is, therefore, possible that Caesar did not plan to occupy the island at this time permanently at all, and this was a small invasion designed to assess the Roman public opinion, and how his many enemies in Rome would react. This is also supported by Caesar performing a similar, more minor excursion across the Rhine before, which could show Caesar's confidence for this invasion. Caesar, after all, had subdued Gaul, and still had a full six campaigning seasons for him to subdue Britain as well, potentially. The political situation in Rome would not be the only one affected. Gaul too would have felt considerable ramifications from this. 
If Caesar's claim was valid that the Britons had often been helping the Gauls, the Gauls likely had stronger ties with Britain than Caesar may have liked. This primarily Celtic island stood as a bastion of many Finns that many rebellious Gauls could idolise. If Caesar left this unchecked, it could be that stability in Gaul in the long run would have been impossible. For the man who at this point has subdued Gaul in all but a formality, this is a strong motivation to not only assess, but to test this threat strength. His motivations, therefore, were in all likelihood a combination of political, military and economic advantages. This invasion was an unprecedented event that no Roman had ever attempted before. Caesar would have known it would have given him gravitas and would have been highly beneficial to his political ambitions. His first expedition, though, was probably primary reconnaissance to test the feasibility of the conquest of Britain, both on the island and in Rome. The first attempt was an utter disaster, and his preconceptions about the island had neither been proved or disproved. His bad fortune at all turns allowed him to understand nowhere near as much as he was hoping about this new island. But he did gain a vital information into its geography and its military capabilities. He also probably gained some support amongst the warring people as well, but likely only on a small scale. So let's now discuss the invasions by Caesar. In the course of his Gaelic wars, Julius Caesar invaded Britain twice, in 55 and 54 BC. On the first invasion, Caesar brought two legions with him, achieving little beyond landing on the coast of Kent. The second invasion was much larger, consisting of 628 ships, 5 legions and 2,000 cavalry. The force was so imposing that the Britons did not dare contest Caesar's landing in Kent, waiting instead until he began to move inland. Caesar penetrated deep into Middlesex and crossed the Thames, forcing the British warlord Cassivellaunus to surrender as a tributary to Rome and setting up Mandubracius of the Trinovantes as a client king. On the first smaller invasion, Caesar initially tried to land at Dubris, modern-day Dover, whose natural harbour had presumably been identified as a suitable landing place. However, when he came in sight ashore, the mass forces of the Britons gathered on the overlooking hills and cliffs dissuaded him from landing there, since the cliffs were so close to the beach that javelins could be thrown down from them onto anyone landing there. Recent archaeology indicates that the possible landing beach was in Pagwell Bay on the Isles of Thanet in Kent. Artifacts and massive earthworks dating from this period have been exposed in that region, although this area would not have been the first secure landing site seen after Dover. Having been tracked along the coast by the British cavalry and chariots, the Roman landing was opposed. To make matters worse, the loaded Roman ships were too low in the water to get close inshore, and the troops had to disembark in deep water, all the while being attacked by the enemy from the shallows. The troops were reluctant, as you can imagine, but according to Caesar's accounts, they were led by the Aquilifa, a standard bearer, whose name is not provided by Caesar, of the 10th legion, who jumped in as the first example, and he shouted, quote, Leap, fellow soldiers, unless you wish to betray your eagle to the enemy. I, for my part, will perform my duty to the Republic and to my general. The British were overwhelmed by the Roman forces with the help from ballistas from the Roman warships, which fired into the flank of the British forces. The cavalry, which had been delayed by terrible winds, did not arrive in time for the conflict, and so, when the British army retreated, they did not get chased down and finished off, allowing the army to reform. 
Caesar established a camp and received ambassadors from the British kings. He claimed he was in a position of strength within the talks with the ambassadors and managed to secure some hostages. However, his luck changed as his cavalry, upon being in sight from the beachhead camp, turned around and headed back to Gaul due to high British winds. This took Caesar by surprise as he was not used to the British high tides and stormy weather, as well as Caesar suffering with a food shortage. This storm had devastating effects to his fleet, his beach warships filled with water and the anchored warships and transport ships smashed into each other. This wrecked some of the ships and left the others unseaworthy, which threatened the return journey. With the realisation of the problem the Romans had, the British ambushed a Roman legion as they foraged for food. The Romans had reinforcements and drove the British off, but they attacked again with a much larger force after they regrouped. This was again driven off and the Romans turned to scorched earth tactics to secure their retreat from the British forces. Caesar left the island shortly after as winter approached and he feared more storms. In total, only two kingdoms seemed to be properly threatened by Caesar during this campaign. If the invasion was intended as a full-scale campaign, invasion or occupation, it had failed. And if it is seen as a reconnaissance in force or a show of strength to deter further British aid to the Gauls, it had fallen short. Nonetheless, going to Britain beyond the known world carries such kudos for a Roman that the Senate decreed a supplicatio, which is a thanksgiving, of 20 days when they receive Caesar's report. It is also suggested that this invasion established alliances between British kings in the area, which smoothed the later invasions of 43 AD under the Emperor Claudius. Shortly after the first invasion, a second invasion was planned during the winter of 55-54 BC for the summer of 54 BC. Cicero wrote letters to his friend Gaius Trebatius Testa and his brother Quintus, both of whom were serving in Caesar's army, expressing his excitement at the prospect. He urged Trebatius to capture him a war chariot and asked Quintus to write him a description of the island. They were to be carried in ships which Cicero designed, with experience of Venetic shipbuilding technology to be more suitable for a beach landing than those used in 55 BC. They therefore were broader and lower for easier beaching. Caesar landed at the place he had identified as the best landing place the previous year. The Britons did not oppose the landing, as Caesar states, intimidated by the signs of the fleet, supposedly. But equally, this may have been a strategic ploy to give them time to gather their forces, or may reflect their lack of concern. However, the next morning, as he prepared to advance further, Caesar received word from Atreus that, once again, his ships at anchor had been dashed against each other in a storm and suffered considerable damage, quite similarly what happened in the first invasion. About 40, he said, were lost in this storm. The Romans were not used to Atlantic and Channel tides and storms, but considering the damage he had sustained the previous year, this was poor planning on Caesar's part. However, Caesar may have exaggerated the number of ships wrecked to magnify his achievement in rescuing the situation. Caesar ventured to the Stua crossing and found a large gathering of British forces. The two armies had a few skirmishes that led to the death of a Roman tribune, but largely they did not achieve anything. The Britons then attacked a foraging party of legions, which routed the British forces, and then the Romans pursued the troops with Roman cavalry. Cassivellaunus, a British king, realised he could not defeat Caesar in a pitched battle. 
Disbanding the majority of his forces and relying on the mobility of his 4,000 chariots and superior knowledge of the terrain, he used guerrilla tactics to slow the Roman advance. By the time Caesar reached the Thames, the only fordable place available to him had been fortified with sharpened stakes both on the shore and underwater, and the far bank was defended. Caesar managed to break past the fortified crossing, with some questionable accounts saying a war elephant with armour and archers in its tower was used to scare off all of the defenders. Following from this, the Trinovantes promised to support Caesar due to their dislike to the British commander Cassivellaunus. With this, five more British kingdoms surrendered to Caesar, which revealed to Caesar the location of the British forces, which may have been at a hill fort at Wheat Hampstead. A siege was therefore established, and after a failed attempt by the British forces to distract the Romans by attacking their beachhead camp, Cassivellaunus negotiated a surrender. This invasion was seen as a massive success to the Romans, although no land was kept after the invasion and no booty had been returned to Rome. What Caesar had done was made a massive impact. Caesar had managed to land and fight deep into the island of Britain, all the way to the Thames and into Kent. After Caesar's invasions, there seems to have been three distinct phases of Roman policy towards Britain. Initially, after Caesar's second invasion, there was a period of 20 years with no actions or plans were created with regards to Britain. The potential agreements after the invasion seemed to have been upheld and sufficient for the Romans. However, this changed as during 34 to 25 BC, there was three different invasion plans created to cross the British Isles and reinvade the British island. The first of these invasion plans was created by Octavian, the soon-to-be Emperor Augustus. Octavian was on the rise in his military and political career and wanted to emulate Caesar's successes in Britain to elevate himself higher in Roman society. After his Illyrian success, Octavian wished to invade Britain before he invaded the Danube. Evidently, this invasion would have been on the smaller scale as it wouldn't have been feasible to have conquered areas in Britain and hold them while enduring on another large-scale invasion. This never materialised, but the idea of an invasion was present in Augustus' mind. Augustus was made emperor in 27 BC, and this allowed him to address the desire to invade Britain again. However, according to Dio Cassius, Gaelic tribes became unsettled and distracted attention away from Britain. Additionally, supposedly, the Britons were also eager to have another agreement with Rome before an invasion occurred. This agreement was probably a replica of Caesar's, but this came to nothing and invasion was still on the cards. However, this idea was halted as uprisings occurred in the Alps and the Pyrenees, which took all thought of an invasion away for a considerable amount of time. Strabo discussed Augustus's policies towards the Britons and concluded that the invasion would have been achievable for Augustus due to the Britons being weak during this period, but there would have been minimal financial benefit in the campaign as the amount made through the taxation of commerce to and from the British lands was higher than what tribute would have been from newly suppressed kingdoms. The Britons seem to have been submitted to heavy duties on imports and exports with Gaul. Relations between Rome and Britain appear to be positive before 34 BC and after 36 BC, as the invasion was distracted from internal problems. This period of positive relationships seems to be shown in 16 BC 
where after Augustus visited Gaul, Tincomius started to mint coinage in the Roman style. Tincomius referred to himself on the coinage as Son of Comius, who was a Roman ally. This would therefore have been seen as a potential relationship that probably would have been a diplomatic success that Augustus would have considered as preferable as a victory in war. Commerce appeared to have been very positive and Roman influence was also very much present in British leadership and rulers. Post Caesar's invasion, Strabo recalls goods that were being exported from Britain to the Roman world. This included gold, silver, stones, slaves and hunting dogs, both for hunting and arena displays. These imports would have been very appealing to the elites of the Roman society and especially the imperial family. However, not solely, as British slaves may have been accessible to the majority of society due to the importance of slaves. Slaves were used throughout the Roman society, not just from elites, and are present in every part of the empire. Some of these goods would have been gifts from the British kings and monarchs, and in return, it is suggested that the majority of expensive commodities circulating in Britain would have been from Rome. This, therefore, is showing good relations during this period that followed the invasions by Caesar. Other more basic commodities were also traded between Britannia and Rome. These included grains, cattle, hides and iron, which are all vital supplies for the military. Scholars have speculated that British princes may have, in return for expensive Roman commodities, traded these basic goods to support the Roman army through these agents. This is additionally supported by the evidence of a change in patterns in agriculture in southern Britain. New opportunities would have arrived for farmers as Roman forces were stationed on the Rhine River from 12 BC onwards. An expansion of the influence of the Roman tribes would have brought more interactions with Rome and Roman influence, enabling more trade. However, not all of Britain held a positive mindset to the Romans after Caesar's invasion. In Western Britain, there seems to have been a hostility to Rome, unlike most of southern Britain. During Claudius' invasion in 43 AD, which we will cover in a later episode, the Duratriges held much hostility that could have derived from the change in trade from Hengisbury to the east coast, affecting that kingdom's wealth and influence. The Dobini can also be seen to distance themselves from the Romans, as when they minted coins, they failed to follow Tincomius when he Romanized his coins. This is very interesting, as there is evidence of Roman, Gaelic and Italian pottery in Gloucestershire, which is where the Domini were based, but evidently they kept the Romans and their neighbours, the Catavellani, at a distance. They probably continued to trade with the Catavellani as their method to obtain Roman goods, but the coinage trail from the Dubani stops at Cherwell, or the border of the two kingdoms, in about 20 to 25 AD, showing again a reluctancy to be completely open like the other British kingdoms. It is clear to see, therefore, that the Romans' invasions inside Britain had changed Britain quite a lot. There was new methods of farming, there was more trade being generated between Britain and Rome and the Roman world, different trading regions had moved within Britain, and so different kingdoms held more influence than others from the past, and so this naturally led to different relationships between the different British kingdoms, as some favoured Rome and enjoyed what had been brought over by Caesar and the changes, and therefore Romanised their 
their coinage, where others obviously had not benefited as well from the change in British life, and therefore they were quite negative and hateful towards the Romans, which is understandable. So in conclusion, Caesar's invasions into Britain was referred to generally as a military success back in Rome, and it opened their eyes to a whole new land where future campaigns could be created. For the Britons, it was the realisation that a much larger, more powerful empire was within touching distance, and no longer over the channel fighting the Gauls, which they would aid. Caesar's campaign had irreversible ramifications in Britain, from the agricultural patterns in the south, the moving of trade routes, and the influence of Rome sparking a long process of cultural blending, which saw large amounts of British coinage being reformed and redesigned to imitate the Roman style of coins they were beginning to encounter, as well as a change in the consumption patterns of the British elites as they sought to imitate the Roman high society. This life continued for some time in the period of peace, but that was to change as Claudius eventually embarked on another campaign into Britain. Unlike his predecessors, whose plans failed at the final hurdle, more soldiers were now mustering for a campaign into the British Isles in 43 AD. This invasion was set to change British history for the foreseeable future, and at the launching of this campaign, Roman men and Roman soldiers were going to be in Britain for hundreds of years. Join us next time as we look at Claudius's invasion into Britain, and how and why that was one of the biggest events that's happened to the British Isles in its history. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the AIQ podcast. We really hope you enjoyed the new style that we're doing with this three-part series. It does allow us to go into a bit more detail than we normally do because we're not jumping from topic to topic now and we're really going to explore Britain in all of the nitty gritty parts. So thank you very much for listening and we hope to see you next time. Have a great day.